This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Steve Klinsky, and he has an absolutely storied history in the field of private equity. He is the person who essentially stood up the LBO department at Goldman Sachs when essentially there were half a dozen or so private equity firms in the country. He eventually goes to Forceman Little, where he's one of the first five founding partners. They grew a business where they eschewed junk debt. They very often were the white knight fighting against the so-called barbarians at the gate. They believed in building businesses and far less focused on financial engineering. Eventually, Steve takes his experience and knowledge and stands up his own firm, New Mountain Capital, which is one of the largest private equity shops in the world. They have $37 billion in clients and their own funds, which they have invested across a variety of disciplines from credit to strategic capital, as well as taking companies private and helping them grow into something more substantial than they've been in the past. I thought this was a masterclass in how private equity works from somebody who was there at the beginning, from Goldman to Forceman Little to his own firm, and has pretty much seen and, and done everything. I found this conversation to be fascinating, and I think you will also. With no further ado, my conversation with New Mountain Capital's founder and CEO, Steve Klinsky. So let's talk a little bit about that MBA JD. That's quite a, a combination. What made you pursue that? I come from the Detroit area of Michigan. I was a public school kid, went to University of Michigan, and studied both economics and philosophy. Sorry about the theft of that last touch. <laughs> and, uh, well, thank you. Thanks for the condolences. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, my family had a business. My grandfather and grandmother had a store for 30 years in Detroit uh, called Albert's, where they sold women's clothes. And my we, it had been built into a chain by my dad and my uncle. So... I was the youngest of five brothers and cousins, and they wanted me to go into the business. And I also had a real love for constitutional law and political philosophy. Mm -hmm. So I actually went to both, you know, kind of the business school to kind of do a family obligation and the law school because I really love constitutional law at that hmm. point. Really interesting. Have you found one or the other more interesting in your career in PE? I, I'm a big fan of both of them and mm -hmm. a big fan of the JDMBO program. And I'm involved with both schools uh -huh. still today. You know, I thought the law school is much more traditionally academic, so I thought I was learning a lot there. The business school, I was only 21 years old. I was like the age of a college senior, and I didn't think I was learning anything. In hindsight, I learned a ton at the business school and at the law school both. I'm a big fan of multidisciplinary you know, approaches, so they've so, both been great for me. So you do a senior thesis about what was then the newly emerging field of private equity. Which school did you do the thesis for? You, you do a thesis, especially for the JD MBA program. You get, mm -hmm. a, you get admitted into each school individually. 
uh, but you finish in four years instead of five, and you write a special thesis, a JD MBA thesis that mm-hmm. has law and business. And what was interesting was the first leverage buyout of a public company happened when I was in graduate school. KKR took a, a, a stock exchange company called Hudai Private, and it was the first time there. Seventy nine. In seventy nine, like yeah. it was the first leverage buyout of a public company, and so it was a whole new idea. I found it very interesting. You know, I had no work experience in anything, so I thought, boy, what an interesting idea. And a potent- we had sold the family business, maybe buy another family business one day through a leverage buyout. So I did my thesis on how leverage buyouts work from the legal and the business side, and I might have been the first person coming out of graduate school saying, I want to be a private equity specialist. So right place, right time, and the right insight into what was then a very novel field. So is that what ultimately leads you to starting at Goldman Sachs? Well, I decided, I thought about corporate law. I wanted to be a Supreme Court justice, and then I realized John <laughs> Roberts, who was a year ahead of me, was the guy who was going to oh, be. Oh, is that true? Yeah, yeah, he was one year. You know, there were some pretty smart dudes wow, at Harvard Law crazy. School. So, yeah, I, so uh, you see John and you say, yeah. all right. Uh, no, he was one year older than me, so I, if I see John, I would say, hello, Mr. Justice Roberts, you don't know me. That's what I would say to, to Mr. Justice but Roberts. In, but in but, school. But he was one year ahead. I'm just saying, you know, I realized, uh, you know, <laughs> I had a picture of Oliver Wendell Holmes above my desk, and right. I was incredibly earnest and intent. And I said, well, you know, I'm all right, but there's some really, it's probably not going to be me as the Supreme Court justice. <laughs> That's so very fun. I thought about, uh, and I did work for Larry Tribe and Con Law for oh, some really? Time. Yeah. It was between corporate law and investment banking. And I decided if I was going to be in corporate, I'd rather be the client than the lawyer. And uh, so I joined Goldman in there. It was a 12 person merger department. And, uh-huh. and they were it just in the days when the uh, the takeover wars were very hot, and Goldman was the firm defending everyone against raids, and Morgan Stanley was doing the raids. So I joined Goldman in their merger department, but said, I'd like to be your LBO guy. They said, we've never done a leverage What's an buy. LBO, right? They said, we've never <laughs> done one. You can be the LBO guy. It's like saying, I, I want to be the wheat farmer on the moon. There was right. no competition. Go, sure, no go one ahead. Came. Go ahead. And uh, <laughs> so uh, so there, there was no LBO that had ever been done at Goldman Sachs when I joined it. And I, I came in with the idea because I had been studying it as a student. So you stood up the LBO division at Goldman, it, essentially. I, I helped bring in the idea. They were starting to get topical, and they set up a two-person group with a guy named Fred Eckert as the vice president and me as the associate. So we the, we were the original LBO group of Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were supposed to do $3 million of revenue. We did $30 million. It just took off very fast. It. you know. And what we were doing was basically advising Goldman clients how to take their own family businesses back off the stock market. We, were more, we weren't owning businesses as much as we were advising mm-hmm. families and stuff. We, I did work on the very first principal investment that Goldman ever did. And Goldman was the size of a law firm back then. People right. forget how much it things It was a partnership. It was small. It, we all fit in one room for the Christmas photo every year. And I mean, it was literally like the size of a, of a law firm, not a giant global institution. And the first deal they ever did with the partner's own money was a company called Trinity Paper Bag. Mm-hmm. It was a $12 million paper and plastic bag company that the guy said, you know, the bag in Tootsie with the ice cream, that was my bag. He was, you know, he was a great entrepreneur. And it was a half a million dollar investment from the firm. And I worked on it. And the two CEOs of the firm watched over me, the head of mergers and everyone watched over me there. Everyone was very concerned with this deal because there was a half a, million of, half a million of the partner's money. <laughs> so it was very early days and all this stuff. So uh, it was a good time. to. It was like going to Silicon Valley the day transistors were invented or something. Right. I had so, very good timing. So how long does it take for the LBO group at Goldman to build into something fairly hefty? 
Yeah, I started at Goldman in 81 doing, you know, mostly raid work and mer- traditional merger and seller work. The LBO group was probably started in 82, and it was already a big success in 84 when I got courted away by Forsman Little. They poached me away. So tell us a little bit about that. You're effectively amongst the first five founding partners. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Well, there were only 20 private equity firms in the world in 1984. There are now over 5,000. Wow. I also just finished being the chairman of the private equity industry, something called the American Investment Council. But there used to only be 20 private equity firms. KKR was the biggest with $400 million of assets <laughs> and eight people. And Forrest Little was the second biggest with $200 million of assets and four professionals, and they hired me in as the fifth professional. And by 90s, two guys had left, so it was the two Forsman brothers, and I was the most senior guy you know, in the 90s. But it was you know, very small, very new, and um, you know, obviously a great time to enter the field. So even back then, when it was the size that you could take a Christmas picture with everybody in one room at Goldman— they're still doing investment banking, they're trading, they're advising clients, they're involved in a lot of different things. How is it different when you move to a shop with a singular focus on private equity and LBO? Well, the, the key thing to me was the thing about being in a private equity shop versus an investment bank is that you are the owner of the company. I mean, even when I was at Goldman Sachs doing private equity work, it's more equivalent or merger work. It's much more equivalent to being a house broker Mm -hmm. than owning the house. So you sell a lot of houses and you get commission on what you sell. But when you're in private equity, you own the business, you control it, you're responsible for it, you have real ownership in it. As a member of Forceman Little, I had true ownership in that company that I never had as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. So that was the attraction to, how does to the that, private equity side. How does that affect your psychology at what deals you consider, what you skip? How does that change how you view the well, world? Well, you know, again, it gives you an owner's mentality. A really good investment banker has that mentality anyways because they just want to give great, you know, wise mm-hmm. advice. A bad investment banker just wants to get deals done and doesn't care much. But as a private equity owner, again, first of all, you do invest heavily of your own money in the transactions, plus you have additional ownership through the, you know, the carried interest, the profits mm-hmm. interest. And so I come from a family business background, and private equity really is a combination, if you do it right, is a combination of the family business mentality of a small group of people who own the business, but also the best aspects of a big company, where today we have tremendous resources that a family could never have. But you do have that family business mentality when you own a business, if you're a good private equity firm. So you leave Goldman, you end up at Forceman. How long did you stay at Forceman Little, and what sort of deals were you working on? Yeah, so I joined in 84 as a, as a younger version of a partner I made, as an associate partner. I made full general partner by 86. And uh, so uh, I was there for their glory years of the 80s and the 90s. I was there from 84 to 99 in their best, best years. And so I did live through things like uh, Barbarians at the Gate. I sure. was a partner for that. I have one line in the book where I say Ross Johnson is totally insane and leave the book. I actually spent about four <laughs> months, night and day working on it, but I'm, I'm happy my line was not pay anything, borrow anything. I'm very happy with my line. Uh, I'm on page 259 if your listeners want to <laughs> check it out. And uh, we were also the... Uh, the white knight, we were the kind of the anti-milk and junk bond guys. So mm-hmm. we were the white knight on Revlon. We had some great success in the 80s and then the 90s were even better. So uh, 
Uh, I can talk more about that, but so I was there for 15 years. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. So let's talk a little bit about LBOs in the 80s and 90s. You mentioned the first LBO of a publicly traded company took place in 1979, and that led to your JDMBA thesis about it. Tell us a little bit about what the 1980s and 90s were like when junk bonds and LBOs first began to ramp up and become yeah. popular. Well, so just to give a little historical perspective uh, on how much things have changed, and th- there is an economic backdrop to all of this stuff. So my first day at work was October 1, 1981 at Goldman Sachs. The highest interest rates in U.S. history were literally the day before I started work. September mm-hmm. 30, 1981, I think the 10-year Treasury was 15.84%. So when we're at you know 3.7% 10-year treasuries, it is nowhere near kind of the situation. Right. There had been stagflation where the stock market was lower in 81 than it had been in 1968. And you know, incredibly depressed market, super high interest rates. So the initial idea of leveraged buyouts, very high inflation, was really was financial engineering, truthfully, back in those days. Because if you had 95 parts debt and five parts equity, and 10% inflation, you know, you could triple your equity with no unit growth at all. Mm-hmm. And interest rates were coming down after Volcker and Reagan broke, you know, inflation and mm-hmm. the stock market was going up. So that's where private equity started. As it really was foreign investment bankers in a room having the nerve to borrow money when other people had been kind right. of beaten down for 13 years. Forceman Little started, you know, around or a little bit few years before then. And they started without junk bonds. It used to be the commercial banks would lend the senior debt, and the insurance companies like Prudential would lend what was called the mezzanine mm-hmm. debt. There was no junk debt available in the market. And Forsman Little created, instead of going to insurance companies, raised its own fund for the mezzanine debt that they could have the banks themselves and then Forsman Little Equity. So that's how it all started. The initial deals were small in dollars, but incredibly high returns, like we owned a company called Topps Chewing Gum back mm-hmm. in the baseball card craze. Sure. $80 million deal with $10 million of equity that went up to $800 million of value. So $10 uh-huh. million became $800 million. It's 80 times your money, which is not bad. It's not the $5 trillion of gains private equity makes today, but it was very eye-opening. Or William, you know, there was a very famous deal, Gibson greeting cards, mm-hmm. where like a half a million of equity went to $40 million. I mean, those were the. that's what got people all excited. That's venture the, capital numbers. Well, that is it is kind of venture capital numbers because the dollars were so small. Right. So it was a tiny compared to what private equity is today, but very high returns. So that started everyone going into the field after the initial 20 firms. You know, Carlisle started, Blackstone started, and they're very transparent. They saw the success of these other firms and said, why can't we do that too? So in the mid 80s, lots of people started to enter as new firms that became great and kept growing. Milken started junk bonds around the mid-80s saying, hey, and he had done, I think, serious academic work that the credit ratings were too conservative, and Uh if you just only went into triple A's, you were giving up return. And so he was creating that market, 
And he both lent to great companies like, you know, uh, the cable companies that grew to be giants and to some people who were kind of more questionable character who, you know, gave business a bad name. So uh, that was the alternative. And then Forsman Little didn't use, we were the one firm that didn't use Milken. We had our own fund. And so we were kind of the white shoe alternative to Milken in all those years. Let's get a little granular, and you're the right person to dive into this with both a JD and an MBA. When we're talking about a structure of a financing and there's senior mezzanine and junk, essentially that's the payout order in the event of a bankruptcy. Tell us a little bit about why it's structured that way, the advantages of each, and the risks of each. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the best way to understand private equity is just to think about if you're buying a house. Mm-hmm. It's really using the principles everyone used in real estate over in the corporate world. So if, you know, if you're a real estate guy and you're buying a building, you would have a mortgage and then put up your own money, or maybe you would have a first mortgage and then a second mortgage so you could put up less money. And if you're really good at improving the building or you just get lucky that inflation raises the value of the building, you know, by having used debt, all the gain goes to that thin strip that mm-hmm. is the equity. But of course, if the value drops, the first thing that gets lost is the equity. So the senior debt is the safest thing because let's say it's 60 cents out of 100. Until 40 cents is lost, the senior debt is safe. Then the junk debt or mezzanine debt may be the next 20 cents Mm -hmm. in the old days. And so if it's worth 80 cents on the dollar, they're safe. And then the equity is the bottom 20. But if it goes up to $2, they've made a dollar on 20 cents. Mm -hmm. So it's just like real estate, but it was done in in the corporate world. And there's just different risks and return possibilities. You know, the thing with debt is you can only make your interest rate. With equity, right. you're unlimited on how much you can make, but you're the first person to lose money if you do a bad Fair. deal. That's a perfect explanation of that. So in the 1980s, you have more companies entering the space. You mentioned there were 20 PE firms back then. Uh, now there's 5,000. How competitive was it to source deals? Was there you know, a overwhelming luxury of choices, or were people scratching to, to get into the best deals? Yeah. The truth is it always feels competitive no matter where you are in history or right. any given time. It never feels that easy or, or that impossible. It's only in hindsight you, it's realize, only in how hindsight good you, you realize how wonderful or terrible the conditions <laughs> right. were. And bad news usually leads to good opportunities, and good news usually leads to problems. I mean, so you just have to live through all this stuff. Uh, I will say when there were fewer firms, so I was effectively, there had Ted and Nick Forsman, Brian Little had retired from the firm. I was the next senior. So for years, I was kind of like the Turkish merchant in the sook where the sellers would come and lay all their goods out in front and say, you can look at this company and this company and this company. And I'd say, no, 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 bring, show me another company. Today, private equity is so much more professional. And my firm, which is not as famous as Forrest Little, but it's much bigger and the industry is much bigger. You know, we have 200 people. We're proactively super deep in specific industries like life science supplies, where we're incredibly knowledgeable. And it's gone from kind of the the small generalists to really sophisticated business building organizations who use, frankly, much less debt as a percentage of the capital structure. Now you might have 60% equity and 40% debt, not 95 and 5. How long did that transition take? Because that's a very different structure. Obviously, interest rates have an impact. We'll get to that. I think that transition has been steadily happening for the 40 years. I've been in private equity for 40 years now. Mm -hmm. And one thing I try to say is that private equity has evolve from a form of finance into a form of business. Hmm. So in 1981, when interest rates were there and everything was started, it was about 
you know, and I was one of the four, for example, four investment bankers having a lot of chutzpah and saying, let's borrow some money and go for it. Today, it's extremely differently. My organization owns companies that employ, I think, 67,000 people. We would be roughly 83 in the Fortune 500 if we were one entity. Mm -hmm. We use all that knowledge to buy the next fairly small company and build it. So it is so different from where I was with Forceman Little or where I was even when I started my firm by myself. I didn't have the you know, the strength, the key is to build, think of private equity as a business that builds businesses and make that business engine stronger and stronger. And that's, it's a better form of governance because you're like a family business since you don't have 90 day reporting. You don't have to worry about third parties. You can be very rational, but you're no longer constrained to just a few investment bankers. You can now be a very strong operation. And that's been a 40 year transition. So we're going to talk about New Mountain Capital yeah, in a yeah. bit. I want to stay in the 1990s. Yeah. What sort of sectors and what sort of industries were the hot memes back then? Yeah. What, where'd you focus? Yeah. So the big long-term story with Force and Little for, as investors, and it was a great firm. We were the second biggest firm, but I think we had the, the highest returns, was you know, in the 80s, it was about kind of any company that looked cheap with a lot of debt. You know, Obviously, there was the 1987 crash of the stock market, but there was a recession in 88, where what we could see was our high-quality companies that were market leaders did fine, and the number three auto parts elastomer company lost all market share to the number one guy and did terrible. And no matter how little you had paid for it, you had paid too much. So as a firm, Force Little said, look, let's evolve into higher-quality growth companies, not just buy things because they're low EBITD, but really pick companies that can be great growth leaders. And the, the, the transaction that I'm most proud of in the 90s was a company called General Instrument. Sure. That, you know, when we found it was a very messed up conglomerate doing racetrack tote boards and defense electronics. But buried within it was the best cable and satellite television equipment business in the world. And people thought the Japanese were over going to destroy all American electronics. We had a different opinion, I can tell you why, that we could fight back. And it went from about a billion of value to 20 billion of value over the course of the 90s. Wow. And that was what I worked closest on over the 90s. And so the other great deals we did in the 90s, though, uh, Gulfstream Jet, sure. which Ted you know, personally loved and, and led, went through some tough times and ended up being a huge success. We had Ziff Davis magazines that we sold to Mr. Sun and started Masayoshi Sun's career. He bought it because <laughs> he had spotted it and, and got him kind of into the internet and all that through through. Uh, so Ziff we have Davis. you to blame. Well, <laughs> he's done fine. He's done. He did very well with it. And uh, so we had a lot of great. We had Department Fifty Six Christmas ornaments. We had all sorts of deals. So it, it wasn't one specific industry, but we went from kind of junky, cheap companies to I, I viewed General Instrument being the model for. Uh, what force model was evolving. Well, what's kind of interesting is you mention a couple of times about what happens when you're in the number three and number four company and they're getting their lunch eaten by yeah. the number one. Uh, in all of these sectors, is it very much a winner take all where you really want to be in the top, maybe second company, but not much further well, beyond that? Well, what I can say, and, and this is getting maybe ahead of it to get into New Mountain strategy, mm -hmm. but when I broke off to start New Mountain, it was really based on two principles, the defensive growth and business building. And what defensive I, growth. Defensive growth. This is like a defensive growth and business building. What I mean by that, even more important than number one versus number three, there are some industries 
that have the wind at their back, mm -hmm. that have secular growth for the next 10 years, and there are some industries that are inherently subject to changing conditions. Oil prices go up or down, uh, you know, fashion retail goes in and out, unlike, for example, selling an ingredient for pharmaceuticals where they need the ingredient and you're specced in by the FDA and you know, they're, so I mean, there are good industries and bad industries that, from the point of view of safety and growth. And the biggest mistakes in private equity, in my 40 years observation, is when the industry melts underneath you. Huh. So, for example, there were giant disasters after I left Force Little. Force Little was doing great when I left. After I left, they changed their strategy and went into what were called CLEX, these alternative telephone companies that uh -huh. were supposed I to. I remember this. That was a super hot theme in the year 1999 and 2000. And so after I left to start New Mountain, they migrated into that, and that whole industry was very hot and then blew up. The that idea, was the George Gilder telecosm debacle. It, it was the idea that you could go in against the— there, there had been a regulatory change that said the big bell telephone monopoly is going to share its equipment with the nice new entrant and be very friendly and let the new entrant use its equipment— and that sounded great. Let's go into the new entrant. And then lo and behold, for some reason, the equipment didn't work for the new entrant right. as well as they had expected. And so these things went from $15 billion to zero. There was XO communication and McLeod. I recall. Right, so anyways, right. that was because the industry. And, and once you've gone into that space, there was no way to save it. Or the initial internet boom where if you own coffeecups.com yeah. as a name, you were worth a billion dollars. And you had no earnings and no revenue. Though I mean, there were things that just go away. I mean, Bitcoin and you know, crypto could totally vanish. And if you put your money in there, it's not how well you manage your business. You're just in the wrong space. So the idea of New Mountain was, and this is kind of evolving from Force Little, was pick the sectors that, at least for 10 years ahead, have clear, stable, secular growth, and then buy in at a reasonable price so we're, don't use that much debt. My firm has never had a bankruptcy, never missed an interest payment in the history of our private equity effort. We've generated over $70 billion of enterprise value gains without one missed interest payment and added over 61,000 jobs without one missed interest payment. So if you start safe, the question is how high you can build it, how mm -hmm. big a mountain you can build, and that gets to operational skill. So it's those two things. Huh. So the concept, to make the parallel to real estate, you're better off with the worst house in a great neighborhood than a great house in a not so good neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, if you go off, I guess the I guess the equivalent would be instead of saying I'm going to go into the middle of the desert and build a building and hope people come around me, uh, which may or may not work. If mm -hmm. you're in a neighborhood you know has rising values and you search for the right value and then you improve that house and you and you know you fix the plumbing and you paint it and you clean it up. You know, it's safer than taking the speculation on whether people are going to move to the jungle and create, you know, the village in the jungle or huh. not. Really, really so interesting. That, that's what we're based on. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. So let's talk a little bit about your experience at Forceman Little. 
during the RJR Nabisco takeover. Tell us a little bit about that experience. What was that like? Yeah, it, it was an amazing time. It, and just to give some context to it, it was part of a bigger, longer-term battle, which was there was the whole junk bond world building behind Mike Milken, who I now like and respect, and I think he's become a great philanthropist. At the time, my firm was just dead set opposed to anything. Doing battle about with them, right? Doing battle with him, not using his money. And, you know, there was a famous editorial Ted Forsman wrote that I helped, you know, write the first draft of for him and all that. So, uh, and it was, we had fought against junk bonds in the Revlon situation. We had fought against junk bonds in Lear Siegler situation. And we were the alternative to junk bonds as a firm. And Ted, who was a very colorful, glamorous guy, dating lady died bigger than life, also was kind of, had grown up in a very white shoe preppy way in Connecticut. And I think was just kind of offended by the whole junk bond world and just opposed it, didn't like it. They're barbarians. They're, they're barbarians. He's the one who said the barbarians at the gate. And some people oh, would really? say- Oh, really? Is that what that, that was his line. From? Oh, no Yeah, kidding. no, it was his line. And the book, by the way, is quite accurate. The movie is a total joke. So the movie says, based on a true story, but it was written by the guy, comedy writer, who wrote MASH. And they mm-hmm. have Ted and Nick dressed up as Indians and with cowboys and you know KKR. And so that was, none of that happened. But the book was quite <laughs> accurate. And anyways, the RJR itself, you know, was going to be a deal where KKR was working with Ross Johnson, the CEO of RJR, because the stock had fallen so much. Then Ross Johnson decided not to go with KKR, and he teamed up with Lehman Brothers and Solomon Brothers, who had a giant a chance for $400 million of fees by doing the deal, which was astounding right. amount of fees for Wall Street in the 80s. And KKR felt, well, that was a break of a word. They, the, they were entitled to still go after the company, and it was very cheap by a lot of measures when the whole thing started. And then Ross Johnson and his investment bankers didn't have enough money in the world to do the deal, and so they came to Forceman Little as the second biggest firm after KKR and said, would you back us because we need your capital to get the deal done? And this is why, you know, I, again, in the book, there's a meeting where Ross Johnson comes in to meet Ted. I'm a partner, so Ted and I sit with him. And he says, I want to do the deal. I don't want to do the deal. It makes sense. It's too. And Ted says to me after, what do you think of him? And I say, I think he's totally insane. (laughs) And again, I wasn't quoted again in the book, but we actually spent, you know, night and day for weeks working. You know, we thought we should study it. I mean, it's a huge opportunity. We should, you know, Mm -hmm. it's our job to study. Is it a good deal or not? We spent weeks, night and day studying it decided it wasn't a good deal, decided not to bid, which I'm fine with. And then when we decided not to bid at 90, it eventually went up to you know, uh, 111 or something like that. But what was interesting was the size of it, I think it was with all the debt, like a $35 billion deal. Huge. And at the time, it was the 19th largest company in the, in the Fortune 500, I think, at the time. So it's, it's, it would be like a $300 billion deal today. It was just huge for the time. And I remember literally sitting with the bankers at uh, Manny Hanny, and we went through every lending bank in the world, every major bank, and said, if they lend their full legal limit, they could we do. raise enough debt? <laughs> it's like, we need $20 billion of debt, and if you know, Bank Santander will lend 300 and the, you know, we tried to total it up, and it barely got to the... It was so, just an astoundingly big thing. There's no way to do this without junk bonds. There's no way to do it without junk bonds. And they eventually used... You know, and again, they used something called reset notes, which said, "Well, if the bonds aren't doing well, we'll pay you a higher interest rate. 
which means, of course, you're killing the company even further, right. which means you have to So it's like a vicious cycle right. of destruction. And it almost destroyed KKR. KKR ended up buying it, and it was kind of a Pyrrhic victory because it was a very tough deal for them. They've, they've done great at getting through it, and they're, you know, they're a wonderful firm today. But I, would, I don't think it was a happy experience for no. KKR to have bought it. And, uh, you know, so we looked at it very hard, decided not to bid. So I'm proud of our role in it. I mean, we, we gave it a hard study and said no, but uh, it was a wild time. And, and the investment bankers at the time were just, every time we went to a meeting on due diligence on, is this a good company or not? All they wanted to do was talk about the fee splits. Well, there's 400 of fees. This is what, we said, no, we don't want to talk about that. We're yeah. trying to figure out what are the earnings of the business. Uh, you know, they, they, you know. Well, you guys put your own capital at we, risk we would, also. We would have. We, well, we so would it's have put, a little different, it's totally different. calculus. You care less about, you're more ROI than, hey, what we, are the fees like? We didn't, yeah, the fees were irrelevant to us. We were all about, we would have been investing our fund in a huge way. Right. And we couldn't get anybody even to like, focus on the business itself everybody was so focused on the you know the uh, the arrangements around it it was it was it was a wild time and, so that and, obviously raises the question all right right off the bat junk bonds shift the focus from hey i'm risking my own capital and i want it back to how big a fee can we spin up what are some of the other problems that you run into when junk bonds allow you to engage in that well, behavior. Well, I mean, they can get out of hand. So, I mean, in 07 and 08, uh, you know, what killed the economy in 07 and 08 were mortgages going down. Right. But those were that, the junk equivalent of but mortgages. Those were, yeah, even, even worse. You know, and then mortgages, levels and right. levels on that. But, you know, lending was getting very effusive in 07 and 08. And again, banks, whether junk bond or not, were saying, well, we're not even lending, we're syndicating. So we don't right. have to worry about it. I would say today, <clears throat> you know, it is it is a much different environment. Even though the so-called junk bond markets are strong and high yield is strong, uh, there is much more equity in companies than there used to be from the private equity firm. We have a lending arm at my firm as well. We have, you know, we have both a public version called New Mountain Finance Company and private versions. And when we're lending to other people's deals, we're usually under forty percent loan to value. Uh, you know, not 95% to value, which is what it was in 1981. That's pretty safe. You got 60% of losses ahead of you. Right. And we think it's a good company that we've studied. You know, we use our private equity people to study the credit. So we say, look, it's in a defensive growth industry. It's a very good company. It's a very good sponsor. And we're almost always under 40% of the of the value. So we've, we've had a very good safety record there. But it's a different mindset than the 80s. I mean, it was a it was a much wilder debt market in the 80s than it is today. It's a very different industry, and a lot of the political criticism about private equity, I think, is a holdover of the 80s, where you had you know Michael Douglas on the giant cell phone in Wall Street and right. stuff, and people. That's what people think private equity is today, and it just isn't anymore. So back then, you had high rates that were falling. Today, we have still relatively low rates yeah. that are rising. Yeah. How does the various uh, interest rate regimes affect what structures of deal look like, especially if there's a lot of debt involved? Yeah, well, absolutely, absolutely, they absolutely do affect it. So again, the reason leveraged buyouts took off and became uh, a wild stallion in the 80s was because you had interest rates going down for the decade. You had the stock market going up for the decade. I was walking Goldman's floor when the 
the market broke a thousand. You know, the market was didn't get over a thousand until like eighty one or eighty two, right? And now it's thirty thousand. So I mean, I tell people I had a I show them the curve of the stock market. I had a pretty good career, right? I mean, because right. my timing was quite good. Plus, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to be good at what I do as well. So that is what led to the use of high debt to all the enthusiasm for the field. I truly believe things have evolved when we get to uh, current day. It, you know, unit growth didn't matter because of inflation and rising markets. Mm -hmm. I would say for any good firm today for the last 10 years is really about unit growth, business improvement, making the business better because you can't just count on rising stock markets and falling interest rates anymore. If you do, you're, you're really bad private equity firm. That, so. That's a giant wind at everybody's back for three or four decades. Falling rates, right. what was it, 80 to 2022? That's a pretty good run of the general trend is lower, and you have equity markets from 80 to at least through 21, rising pretty substantially, even with the 2000s being a pretty... It's bum. definitely been a 40-year secular bull market. After 13 years of stagflation from 68 to 81, it's been you know 40 good I'm, years from 81 to today. I'm glad you brought up that term because I'm old enough to remember the 70s as a kid going to get gas to mow the lawn right. and having the guy, the attendant ask me, do you have an even number or odd number license plate? Right. My, my answer was, I'm 11. I don't have a <laughs> License plate. Just give the kid as gallon of gas. But whenever people talk about, oh, today we have stagflation, you've experienced both. How do you compare this era to the 70s? Well, th this is this is what I tried to say. My first day at work, 10-year treasuries were 15.8% right. versus 3.7%. Right. today. And right? a house right. mortgage could be 20%. People are paying 20% of their house mortgages. Amazing. And the stock market was, I think, six times net income. When right. I used to sit in the Goldman you know, uh, merger department on like what we could sell the company for and we'd all sit around the table, I mean, if we really stretched 10 times net income, I think if we find the hot buyer, we can get to 10 times you know, with no adjustments, no trickery, after-tax net income. That would be a great price for most businesses. Or I remember reading a book when I was in graduate business school, never pay more than tangible book value for any business. I mean, if you did that, Amazon, you know, I mean, right. uh, what, why, Google would be worth the penny or something. Why would I want to sell something for tangible book right, value? Right, it, it's, right. go build why it, it'll take you more, two years. Why, why would I tangible? pay more than the value of the accounts receivables? There's no, <laughs> so that's, and so it is totally different today, but also, the skill sets, you know, what, what I, again, when we get into more New Mountain, there are 8 billion people in the world who get up every morning trying to make their life better, make the world better. And there are pockets of innovation all, at all times, including now, where things are getting better, cheaper, better ways to do things. And if you're part of those trends and you accelerate those trends and improve those businesses, there's wonderful opportunities at all time. But it isn't just a general be dumb, lever things up, wait for things to rise. That is like dumb private equity that's been isn't around anymore, I think. If it is, it's going to be bottom quartile. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. Let's talk a little bit about why you launched New Mountain Capital. You were having fun at Forceman Little. Why set out and, and stand up your own shop? Yeah, you know, I had had a great uh, 20 years working with uh, Goldman Sachs and Forceman Little. Forceman Little was a top, top performing place. It was a very quirky place. We had eight professionals at the firm mm-hmm. and more people flying the jets and the helicopters and the working at the firm. And, <laughs> and Ted was kind of a very large, who was a great mentor to me in a lot of ways, was also uh, known to, you know, he's passed away, he was known to be a somewhat difficult personality. And, uh, and larger so, than life, larger sort than of. life, dating lady die, you know, right. flying in the Gulf streams and all that. But it was always kind of a, uh, it was not a calm, uh, happy place inside. So I, I broke off to start New Mountain. And, uh, you know, it's gone better than I ever would have expected, and it's been a, a great experience. Yeah, so when you leave Forceman Little, are you thinking, I'm going to just do the same thing? Or are you thinking, I have a lot of ideas that wouldn't have worked there that I want to try out on my own? I, you know, I had uh, really enjoyed the general instrument experience where we took it from a billion of value to 20 billion and had we had I could imagine why you would enjoy well that. and besides <laughs> that the value went up we had been the first company in the world to propose an all digital television standard we helped pioneer uh, cable modems we created the thousand channel cable systems and on demand it was really a great experience for nine years so this and is I, really building a business and, not just Putting passive capital right. to work, and it was it was considered one of the first great kind of technological deals. I used to go out to Kleiner Perkins and have a regular mm-hmm. relationship with them. So I mean, it was a really kind of a cutting edge deal, and other deals were similar at Forceman Little. So the idea of safety but growth, really growing businesses. The whole name New Mountain comes to the idea of building new mountains in the industries where we uh-huh. invest and protect the downside first, and then really build something instead of levering things or risking things was very attractive. And, and the fact to build a culture that was kind of more of a Goldman Sachs family business culture, plus that those approaches, uh, you know, were compelling. So talk about building New Mountains in 2019. You executed a $4 billion IPO for your Avantor Life Sciences Company, the largest Healthcare-related IPO, I think, in history. Is that is that? Yeah, we've true? had we've had some good IPO successes, and and you know, and I'm only going to tell you what's in the public record because I don't want to try to you know <laughs> give returns or anything. We had bought a business that was called JT Baker for 290 million dollars when it was going to be discontinued by Malincrot. We renamed it Avantor, changed the management, changed the strategy, and built it in, from 290 million to 20 billion plus. And not it's too a fortune, shabby. Not too shabby, and it's now. Uh, you know, with Thermo Fisher, one of the two leaders in lab equipment and life science supplies around the world. We had another business like that called Signify, which is uh, in contract to be sold to CVS. We've what, had other... what does Signify do? Signify is the leader in sending doctors and nurses into the homes for medical checks. Ah. And we took it from 250,000 home visits a year to 2.5 million home visits a year. And then CVS, if they own it, could really do even better and save lives by combining CVS with what the doctor visits do. It could be really a great thing for society if, the, you know, uh, if they buy it. So uh, you know, those are just some examples. We've had a bunch of good successes. So, so this isn't pouring money into startups like Venture does. You look at existing companies that are either 
undervalued or maybe misvalued is we, a better way to describe we, it? What, what we do is uh, we have a whole very formal top-down process for 20 years where we choose the sectors that we think can grow with secular growth for the next 10 years. Those are defensive growth sectors. And we really become the best we try to become the best there is anywhere in those sectors. So life science supplies, healthcare, IT, managing wind and solar farms, uh, niche software and consumer, different things like that. We buy a business that's already safe and stable, but hasn't figured all the th- ways to grow itself yet. And then we grow it in every possible way. So we buy businesses from you know, 100 million on up, and we add venture capital upside, but to a safe Mm-hmm. We don't want to have the one big winner and a bunch of losers. We, we've never had a business, again, go out of business or not pay an interest payment. And the question is uh, you know, how high we can build. So it's different math than I need one 100x winner versus 99. Yeah, I don't have – coming from a family business, we say we don't have portfolio theory. We have family business theory. Right. When we go into a company, we, we want to preserve and protect it. We're responsible for it. If there's a problem, we work twice as hard to fix it. On the other hand, a lot of these businesses, you know, the entrepreneur had built it up to a certain size, had never done an acquisition, had never built the sales force, had never made technology investments in the full way, had never gone international. So we take the business and then take it up to the next level of growth. What other lines of investment do you focus on? Do you do credit? Do you do distressed asset, real estate? Tell us where else you focus. So the way we think about it, in these defensive growth sectors, our first choice is to buy majority control and build the business. That's our private equity fund. If the founder says, I love you guys, you can add a lot of value. I don't want to sell control. We have a non-control fund called strategic equity to buy the same sort of businesses we just don't have control, but we're very involved in building the business. If equity's not for sale, but we think it's a great safe business, like a great software business that someone else bought, we can lend to them. That's our credit arm, which trades publicly as New Mountain Finance Company, and we have private versions. And and since we've been so safe at the equity level, we've been very, very safe at the debt level. And if they don't need a loan, we can lease them their own building back in a net lease Mm-hmm. and have both the credit of the company and the real estate as collateral. And that's, like, like to us, a very, another high version of That That yield. was a huge business for a while, the net leasebacks. Yep. Is that still as popular as it once was? It's always been niche within real estate. There was one guy who did it very aggressively, who bought every restaurant chain and stuff, who overstepped. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the people have been doing the long term. It's been an extremely safe asset class, and it's actually, I think, kind of an undiscovered asset class. And uh, you know, we, we, we had a very good run of it so far. And a lot of private equity has been focusing on private credit. What does New Mountain Capital do in the space of private Credit, if anything. Yeah, so that is our, our private credit. We run about $10 billion of private credit. We have one of the largest and oldest of the what's called the BDC, these publicly traded mm-hmm. credit arms. What's great about them is it's floating rate debt. So as the interest rates have gone up with inflation, it's right. actually better for this type of lending. It's not like owning a long-term fixed-rate bond. You get right. all the advantages of inflation and the higher interest rates. The key is to avoid defaults. And we do that by focusing on these safe industries and really knowing the businesses and being able to fix them if we need to go in and fix them. Uh, And net lease is similar where what's nice about it is you have rent escalators for 20 years that more than cover inflation 
and you have both the credit of the business and the real estate if you need the real estate. And so though we do the credit and the net lease for good steady yield, and we do private equity and strategic equity for you know, big returns. So I know we're not going to talk about performance and returns because of the normal compliance headaches. Do you target specific returns for different types of investment, credit, real estate, uh, business turnarounds? How do you think about those in terms of what that can generate? Yeah. So in investment committee for private equity or strategic equity, we have two questions. Is it safe on the downside, even if the world goes bad? Mm -hmm. And do we think we have a fighting chance to make 30% gross returns on the investment or better? That's our- Over what time period? Over about a four-year period. All right, so we're not talking 30% annually. You know, compound 30%. Over four years. Which is like a three or four bagger on the investment. That's kind of, and again, we've had better and we've had worse, but uh, you know, we've, uh, that's kind of our standard target in private equity and strategic equity. And then in the credit and net lease funds, we're trying to have a current yield. It used to be, it's about 800 basis points over the base rate. So it used to be kind of a 10% type target. And as rates have moved up, that target moves up as well. Mm -hmm. So, and that's supposed to be current yield every, you know, paid out every quarter. Like LIBOR plus six? So do we even use LIBOR anymore? Yeah, people do use LIBOR. So, and again, I'm not talking about us specifically, but you know, you might see a 13% type return on loans mm-hmm. where it used to be 10% last year. I mean, and, and the interest rates are still going through, working through because as the interest rates reset from the borrowers, so they're resetting higher at the moment. I've noticed some of the publicly traded yeah. private equity firms um, have a tendency to say, we're going to offer our all strategy funds, which is... of each of our five strategies. Do you guys do anything along those lines? We we haven't. I mean, it's not a bad idea to do that. We, you know, we want to let each limited partner choose just what they want for themselves. We haven't done, you know, the umbrella fund, but people can be, we do have people who are on multiple funds, Mm -hmm. but we've done it a la carte. And you mentioned your LPs. Who are your clients, meaning what sort of uh, investors? In the private equity fund and strategic equity fund, it's the big pension funds in the U.S., it's the big Canadian asset plans, it's the sovereign funds around the world in mm-hmm. Europe and Asia. And in our credit funds, on the public one, it's some institutions and retail investors, just high net worth investors who are looking mm-hmm. for double digit yields, also a net lease. That's kind of the breakdown. Huh. Really interesting. Before we get to our favorite questions, I have a couple of curveballs to throw at you. And the first is, you set up the uh, Modern States Education Alliance to look for solutions to the high cost of college education. Tell us what that is, what motivated you to do that, and how is it going? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking about that. That's a, a cause that's very near and dear to my heart. So, you know, I'm proud of what New Mountain does and the way we build companies. I'm also trying to do philanthropy alongside of New Mountain. I've been very involved in education reform for many years and after school centers, I fed up, set up the first charter school in New York State. I'm, oh, really? I'm the chair of Harvard's uh, public education policy group. I succeeded Jeb Bush there. And the cost of college has gotten incredibly expensive. The average college, even at a state school, is 30000 a year all in. There are, and so what we did at Modern States, and it was an idea I had that we're now doing, is we hired the best professors we could find in the country, like Johns Hopkins math professors, to teach the basic freshman courses online 
as a top quality online course. But instead of charging, which everybody does, we just give them away for free. They're like a library of free courses with practice questions. They qualify you to take the college board, which does the SAT exams and advanced placement, has a set of exams called the CLEP exams that anyone can take at any age. And if you pass those exams, you get credit at almost any state school, any community college. Almost, You don't get it at Harvard and Yale, but Michigan State, Penn State, Ohio State, you know. Uh, so in other words, you could do a year of school you, essentially you, for free. Totally for free. And we also pay the exam fees for you. Oh, no kidding. So anybody, if you are the poorest person in the world and you have ambition, go to modernstates.com or .org, modernstates.org. You'll see all the courses laid out. All you got to do is download them like you would a Netflix movie. Well, when you pass the course, we give you the voucher to pay for the exam. And when you have those exams passed, every admissions catalog will tell you which CLEP exams they'll take for credit. So we have over 300,000 users. We've saved you know tens and tens of millions of dollars for huh. people already. And it is so efficient because you know I spent we spent some millions to prepare the courses, but it's like if you do The Godfather on Netflix, you don't have to do The Godfather every time. I mean, once right. it's on the site, it's on the site. So if a million people use it, they can all see the same course. It doesn't cost us any more. And we are paying the exam fees for as far as we can uh, keep affording it. It's just a great way to save money. So like Purdue has made it a key program at Purdue. They call it Purdue Fast Start. They're encouraging every poor kid in Indiana to take mm-hmm. these courses and enter Purdue as a sophomore. Uh, we're working with all sorts of people. So it, it's my major uh, charity cause. Huh, that's really intriguing. And then another curveball, your wife, a former Bear Stearns banker, published a book in 2016, Opening Bell, spelled with an E on Bell, which is a fictionalized account of a woman navigating the financial crisis here at Wall Street. Tell us a little bit about that. That yeah, sounds I'm, quite fascinating. I'm, I'm very blessed. I have a beautiful, brilliant wife who was a managing director at Bear Stearns, lived through you know, all the Me Too movement before there was a Me Too movement, mm-hmm. uh, got her master's in, in fine arts at Columbia, wrote both a great book that's in a lot of school libraries called uh, Walls Within Walls for like Harry Potter readers, and wrote a bestseller called Opening Bell for Adults, which is about a woman named Bell who is uh, working through Wall Street as the breadwinner with a husband who's like an audiovisual guy. So everybody thinks it's that I'm an audiovisual guy who's lost his job, <laughs> but otherwise it's a very accurate book. And uh, it's a great book, and it was going to be a Reese Witherspoon movie, and it's still kind of out there. And so uh, I, I, it was a, I recommend it to anyone who wants to know what it's like to be a woman on Wall Street. Huh. All right, I only have you for a limited amount of time, so let's jump to our favorite questions. And since you mentioned Netflix, let's start there. Tell us uh, what you were watching during the lockdown. What kept you uh, entertained? Uh, oh well, during during the lockdown, we of course had to watch Tiger King. Really? And, and when I was when we were stuck for months going crazy at home with uh, our, we have young adult kids now who had their uh, you know significant others over. We once had a Tiger King dinner party where we all dressed up and we were going so crazy under COVID that everybody said, look, let's all come down and have dinner as a Tiger King character. Hilarious. So that got us through COVID. Uh, these days, though, uh, and I don't, don't have to be locked down anymore. These days, it's uh, I love uh, White Lotus 2 mm-hmm. and I love Succession. I'm waiting for Succession to come back. So those would be the shows uh, today. Um, I'm going to give you a recommendation because I think... 
this might intrigue you. We just started Kaleidoscope. Ah, I haven't which heard it, of it. Which is like um, Money Heist, only it's, I think it's limited to eight uh, episodes, and apparently you can watch them in any order. Huh. There's no chronology. We'll, we'll like see a kaleidoscope. If that's, really that's very interesting. That, that's the thought process. Tell us a little bit about your mentors who helped shape your career. Yeah, look, the, the biggest mentor in my life is, uh, was my father, and mm-hmm. incredibly influential to me and a wonderful man. I read a ton of history, so every time I read a history book, whether they failed or succeeded, they're kind of a mentor for, like I'm just finishing a book now about Emperor Maximilian and Carlotta in Mexico who ended up getting huh. you know shot by a firing squad, and but uh, you learn a lot in everything. And uh, as far as investment mentors, I was very influenced by Goldman Sachs and its culture, uh, Ted Forsman and the Forsman little guys were in- incredibly good investors and very thoughtful. And so, I mean, I, I, everybody's a mentor. I'm reading everything I can, and I read a lot of nonfiction. And I try. L- to let's talk about about what you're reading. Tell us what you're currently finishing up, and what are some of your favorites. Well, I mean, some of the things I'm finishing up, like I say, I'm finishing up this book about Maximilian and Carlotta, which is an old history book that I came across. I just, I read Ship Wars, uh, you know, which I thought was very good about Ship the Ship Wars. Ship Wars. Ship it's Wars. about the semiconductor industry. It's a mm-hmm. great book. So I, I read a lot of nonfiction. And the best nonfiction I've read is Ron Chernow has some great biographies. I love Amazing. the Grant biography. I love the uh-huh. biography of Vanderbilt. I'm a big fan of George Washington and Winston Churchill and Lincoln and guys like There's that. There's a new so, Churchill biography out that some people have been talking about. I just read Splendid in the Vial like uh-huh. six months ago. Larson, and, uh, uh, and obviously uh, the whole Manchester series was great. And so, uh, uh, you know, so I, I read a lot. Of, I read mostly nonfiction. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in either private equity or investing? You know, I, I am a big fan of private equity. I don't think at all that it's too late or the golden days are done because, you know, again, the advantage of pri- one of the great advantages of private equity is you can always move into the industry that's emerging for the next 10 years. I don't have to be in my grandfather's store selling coats. I can be moving into, you know, DNA uh, sample preparation. I can be moving into proteomics or whatever, wind farms or whatever. So, Private equity is a great field. You should think of it as building businesses, not levering businesses. And if you think about it that way, it's a wonderful place to be. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of stock market investing. I just find it too dang difficult and arbitrary. I am a big fan of private equity and credit investing. And, and a final question. What do you know about the world of investing today? You wish you knew 30 or 40 years ago when you were first getting started. Well, I didn't know anything about the world of investing 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, I, I could tell you more about Supreme Court decisions than I knew about investing. And again, what I've learned, or I'm trying to get people to accept, is that good investing is owning and building businesses. Not You're not the bookie in the stands. You're the player on the field. Huh. And you're the coach and player. You control the play. You play better. And you can make money either gambling on the team or being the team. I think the you know I I think the best results and kind of the most fun is actually being the team, owning the business, building the business, rather than betting from the outside on the business. And that's what I think good private equity is. Really, quite fascinating, Steve. Thank you for being so generous with your time. This has been absolutely fascinating. We have been speaking with Steve Klinsky. He is the founder and CEO of private equity firm 
New Mountain Capital. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out all of our previous podcasts. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You can follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts at Podcasts on Twitter. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Paris Wald is my producer. Steve Russo is my head of research. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Justin Milner is my audio engineer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.